So this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Now, in response to the matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't own anything, 
and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world, in its current form, is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper, and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If any man thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age for marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning, they can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiancée, will do well. So then, he who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. So, Tim put this series together. I don't know what I did wrong. This must be payback time. So, this is the next in our series, But for the Grace of God, as we're going through the letter, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And today's title is Marriage, Singleness, and Sex. And so, I want to recommend some books to you this morning, right at the very beginning, because I'm not going to be able to touch everything uh, that we talked about today. So first of all, um, in terms of marriage, uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller and his wife Kathy Keller, an outstanding book on marriage. I think it's excellent. I'd recommend it to anyone. So really good book on marriage and what marriage is all about, Christian marriage. For those who uh, have, uh, many here will have, uh, have experienced and seen firsthand the impact of divorce um, there's a book by David Instone Brewer, Diver- Divorce and Remarriage in the First and 21st Century. Um, this is uh, just a, a smaller booklet version of it, but there's a longer book. Um, excellent. I would recommend that. Um, in terms of those who, uh, I think I would recommend all of us read this. It's a book on singleness. It's called The Seven Myths About Singleness. It's by Sam Albury. Excellent book. I've skimmed that book. It's really good. This is a book that comes with a recommendation. I actually haven't read this myself, but Jonathan recommended it. It's called Loveology. It's by John Mark Comer. And uh, I'll hopefully quote something from that at the end uh, of this morning. So, I don't know if you ever uh, watch a program called Mock the Week. It's been on for years and years and years on our televisions. It's It's just about coming to an end. And there's a, a part in Mock the Week where uh, they uh, say, that is the, the part is called, here's the question, what's the answer? And so they'll put up a number 
uh, like, uh, say, 44. 44s the, uh, is uh, the answer. So what's the question? And people will, uh, uh, the contestants, will make a bit of fun, and uh, they will uh, uh, just come up with humorous answers. You know, that, you know, 44, Steve, it's my age. It's how old I am. In my dreams. And so a number of people will give answers, humorous, and uh, then eventually uh, the real answer will come out. It's the number of days that Liz Truss uh, was Prime Minister. Now, I don't know what was more funny, me being uh, 44 or Liz Truss 44 days being Prime Minister. Now, Paul starts this letter uh, answering specific questions that the Corinthians have raised. He says, now for the matters you wrote about. So at the outset, I want to say three things that I want you to hear. First of all, it's good that the Corinthians were asking questions. It shows concern over the permissive culture that they were living in. It shows concern over how they ought to live in the world that they were facing. And it shows a measure of humility. We don't know all the answers. And it's a challenge to us in these days. We need to be asking questions about what's going on in our culture. That's why, partly why we're tackling Uh, 1 Corinthians in this way. The second thing that comes out is that we need to be careful when we don't know the questions and so we can easily misinterpret the answers that we're hearing. We need to be really careful. So as you're listening today, I want you to listen carefully. Don't switch off. These are complicated issues in the world we live in. And thirdly, despite not knowing the questions, we are getting here Paul's apostolic wisdom as he sets out God's uh, godly principles in the areas, uh, complex areas of marriage, singleness, and sex. And Paul, in 40 verses, can't give us his comprehensive answers to those subjects. And likewise, in the few minutes that I have available this morning, neither can I. And so we're going to just focus this morning on eight principles that I see coming out of this passage. You know, first century Corinth and 21st century Winchester are very similar. Marriage and singleness are not honored. Divorce is rife. And sexual freedom is the order of the day. Michael Green, who was the author of the Corinthian Agenda, says this. He says that Paul's days, like our own, had a warped attitude towards sexuality, singleness, and marriage. A warped attitude. The permissive culture in Corinth was infiltrating the church. Some believers in the church in Corinth were behaving no better than those outside the church, and sometimes, we're told, even worse. And as a result, there was pressure for married couples in the church. Because of what was going on, they were being encouraged to stop having sex. That was called asceticism. Basically, that sex is bad. It must be bad because it's causing this mess in the world around us. And other believers were being encouraged to separate from their non-believing partners. Today, it's so easy for us to slip into one of two positions. The position of license, grace. We can do what we like. It doesn't matter because we're saved. Or legalism. 
These are the rules. This is the way you've got to live. Both can sound spiritual, but both are wrong. And so here's the first principle that comes out of Paul's letter and this chapter. This life isn't all there is. And we see that in verses 29 to 31. You see, this world tells us, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And later in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, Paul agrees that if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then this life is all there is, and we may as well live just like that. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And those who put their personal trust in him will rise with him. And a day is coming when Jesus will return and bring his kingdom in and all will be put right. And that's why Paul says, for this world in its current form is passing away. I remember hearing uh, my old minister when I was growing up say this. He says, the moment, uh, the issue of death and people dying, he said, he said, in those moments, grammar is really important. He said, for some people, that moment is a full stop. That's the atheist. This life is all there is. For some people, that moment is a question mark. That's the agnostic. Not sure. I hope there's something after this, but I don't know. But for the Christian, there's a comma, because the best is yet to come. As Jesus followers, we are living for a better day. We live, Peter says, as aliens and strangers in this world. The Corinthians were living in deeply challenging moral days. And Paul's reminder is that the world is transient and the best is yet to come. And that is still relevant for us today. And so the challenge for us is, are our lives established, grounded solely on Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for us? Are our lives fully submitted to him? I want to challenge you this morning. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? This world is not all there is. There is a better world coming. There is a better day coming. And for us to enter into the fullness of that, we need to put our trust in Jesus Christ and come to know a Father in heaven who loves us. This life isn't all there is. The second thing that comes out of this chapter is God comes first. You see, across the Roman Empire, everyone was forced to confess that Caesar is Lord on pain of death sometime. And the gospel is countercultural, and we see that right through this letter. Paul is, says, I am simply a servant of Jesus Christ. And he says, for followers of Jesus Christ, there is just one Lord, and it's not Caesar. Jonathan was talking last week that we are no longer our own if we have given our lives to Jesus. We belong to him wholeheartedly. We have been bought at a price. 
And God is not ashamed to dwell with us. As Jonathan said, he's not ashamed to dwell in our bodies, so we shouldn't be ashamed of our bodies. Our primary concern, Paul says, should be devotion to him in body and spirit, he says in verse 34. And so we should live our lives to please him because he is our Lord. There's a story of Alexander the Great, the great Greek leader. And one day he was walking around his troops at night and there was a sentry. He came across one of his sentries who'd fallen asleep. A young lad had fallen asleep and he wakes him up and the young lad wakes up and he sees it's Alexander, the commander of the Greek armies. And Alexander says to him, he says, son, what's your name? And the boy says, Alexander. And Alexander the Great says this to him. He says, well, either change your name or change your behavior. We belong to Jesus Christ. We carry his name, and how we live in these days is important. We are sons of a father in heaven. God comes first. The third thing that comes out is marriage isn't essential, but it is exclusive. Paul's crystal clear. It's good not to get married. Do you hear that? It's good not to get married. That's what he says. And there are many who would agree with him in the world today, but for different reasons. Today, marriage is just a contract. What's the point? Many people have grown up experiencing, maybe you're here today, grown up experiencing what it is like to grow up in a broken home. And it causes us to try to avoid the pain. We're not going to go there because of what we've experienced. And so we're just going to maybe live with our partner and enjoy the financial advantages. But the point, Paul's point is very different. He says, by remaining unmarried, we are able to give Jesus our undivided loyalty. Paul is simply saying, we don't have to get married. The lie in this day is that we are only complete if we meet our soulmate. It's a lie. The film Jerry Maguire where he says, uh, where he says, uh, you complete me. It's a lie. The only one who can complete us is the one who started us. That's what Jonathan came out with just as we were talking on Friday. The only one who can complete us is the one who started us. We are created with eternity in our hearts, we're told in Ecclesiastes. We're created with a God-shaped hole inside that only Jesus Christ can fill. Marriage isn't essential. But if you do get married, then Paul says it's exclusive. We live in days when the world is trying to redefine marriage. And we need to be clear, just as Paul is clear. Biblical marriage is intended between one man and one woman for life. It's an exclusive relationship. The challenge to us is, uh, is our view of marriage healthy? 
Do we have a healthy view of marriage? Have we been tarnished by our experiences and what we've seen around us? Are we looking to the Bible? Are we looking to our experiences? Marriage isn't essential, but it is exclusive. The fourth thing is this. Promises are for keeping. We had a funeral here a few weeks ago. And one of, uh, one of our own, Jane Gagel, passed into glory. And her son was speaking, speaking here, standing pretty much where I'm standing. And uh, he was giving a eulogy. And this is what he said. Jane had been ill for four years. Been a, a really tragic, difficult end. She loved God all the way through it. But it was really difficult, particularly for Dave, her husband. And Josh, their son, stood here and he said this. Dad, you promised in sickness and in health to, to be with mum. Dad, I want to say over this last four years, you lived it out. Every Christian wedding involves the bride and groom making deep promises to each other before the living God. Forsaking all others. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. These are shared promises. Something profound is happening when a Christian bride and a Christian husband, a a groom, make those promises to each other. The wedding is marked with great joy, but eventually the honeymoon period wears off. And sadly, promises get broken. We are flawed people living in a flawed world. On occasions, Annie and I and others in the church have had to try to help couples through such seasons. But our starting point is that in every marriage, the situation is redeemable given humility, time, repentance, hard work by both parties and an abundance of God's grace. You see, the world around would offer us little encouragement. Marriage vows are just another promise that can be broken. Maybe you're here today and you've experienced broken promises, promises that were made to you that have been broken. If you are, God can hear you. As we were been singing about in our worship, he heals the brokenhearted. That's what it says in Psalm 147. Maybe you're here this morning and you've broken promises and you bitterly regret it. I want to tell you this. God is merciful and forgiving. Even if we have to live with consequences, there is forgiveness with our Father in heaven. Promises are for keeping. The fifth thing is this, is marriage is important to God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, Paul explains the high bar that God has set for Christian marriage. We're going to watch a video that Andrew Wilson did some years ago. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ 
and the church. Symbols, shadows, parables. Sometimes this is about that. Flowers are about love. Signatures are about promises. Fireworks are about celebrations. Poppies are about war. And marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound, says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the wedding begins with the groom waiting at the front. He has pursued his bride and won her, and now he just has to wait. And when she eventually comes in, the whole room stands and stares at her beauty, her immaculate dress, pure and white and spotless. She gets presented to him, and they declare that they have no other partners. They hold hands. They make promises to have and to hold, for better, for worse, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. They exchange rings, signs of the covenant promises they have just made. They sign their names and make their vows legal. Then, as the ceremony concludes, they walk back out again, united as one. Everything he has is hers, and everything she has is his. Everybody celebrates with a meal. Later, they will express their physical union and share all of their possessions. She even takes on his name. Two have become one. And all this is about that. Jesus has made his people ready. His death for our sins has made us beautiful, pure, white, and spotless. We are given to him and to nobody else. We make promises to each other. Never will I leave you or abandon you, says Jesus, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And we reply to him, I will forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. There is an exchange of gifts. God gives us his spirit. There is a legal declaration. God says we are righteous in his sight. And we walk on, united as one. Everything he has, his love, his power, his goodness, becomes ours. And everything we have, our sin, our shame, our past, becomes his. Everybody celebrates with a meal, bread and wine. We express our physical union through baptism in water. We give him access to all our possessions. We even take on his name and his identity. We become Christians. Two have become one. This is about that. That is a powerful video that just explains far better and far quicker than I could what Christian marriage is all about. It's so important that Paul encourages believers to stay with unbelieving partners, uh, implying that this will bring their unbelieving partners under the sound of the gospel, the influence of the gospel. Talks about, in some versions, about sanctifying them, making them holy. Paul's hope is that their unbelieving partners come to faith. Many of you are here today because you were married to a believing partner. Let's retain a high view of marriage. Don't rush to get married. Listen to those, if you're thinking about marriage, who know you well. Talk to us about having marriage preparation. If you're a believer, Paul says that the person you're marrying must belong to the Lord, in verse 39. If you are single or married, don't get close to, too close to someone 
of the opposite sex who's married. If we're married, protect it, invest in it. Paul says it's the Lord's command not to separate or divorce. Reiterating what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. Jesus says that in marriage, a couple become one. He says they shouldn't separate. Splitting, just as in splitting the atom releases uh, such uncontrollable power, destructive energy, so divorce can cause untold damage. And sadly, we've had to walk with believers through the painful process of divorce. I want to say, if you are here and you have been divorced, you've experienced it, it is not the unforgivable sin. It is not the unforgivable sin. I know many people who have gone through divorce, they never wanted to get divorced, and it's not their fault. I know many who have gone through divorce, the circumstances have just been awful, and in the end it was the, it was the right thing to do in the circumstances. If you're living with the pain of divorce, I don't have the time to explain the context of all that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. But you can go to our website and you can listen to a preach that I did in this back in October 2018 on a series called Malachi. And the preach is called God Speaks of His Faithfulness. And there'll be some stuff there that will help you. Read David Instone Brewer's book. Also on this coming Tuesday, we are piloting, starting a new course called Restored Lives to help people recover from relationship breakdown. God knows what it's like to be rejected by those who promise to be faithful to him. And so with God, there's hope of restoration. Marriage is important to God. Sixthly, singleness brings blessings. Listen, Jesus was the most fulfilled human being who ever lived, and he was single. Paul when he writes this, is happily single. He says, I wish you all were as I am. He says it frees us up to devote more time to the Lord to please him. He says that singleness is a gift from God. For those of us who are married, you need to hear this. One day, many of us are going to be single again. Singleness is not missing out on God's best for our lives. And yet we live in a world, and sadly in churches, where people convey the opposite. Oh, shame. There's plenty more fish in the sea. One day you will meet someone. I want to say, those are heartless things to say when people are lonely and longing to share their life with others. All of us, single and married, ought to read Sam Albury's book about the seven myths about singleness. If we're married, we should be inviting single people into our lives and families, especially at key moments, celebrations, holidays. This Christmas Day, Michael and Angie Groblar are going to be doing a meal for single people who are on their own in here. 
on Christmas Day. Why? Because we care. We love those in our family, wherever they are in their life at this moment, and we want to care, and we want to show we care. You see, as a church, we need to work much harder at recovering Paul's high view of singleness. Paul says it can be attractive. The word he uses is beautiful. He says this, it can be beautiful. It can be fulfilling and liberating. We need to regain that ground. Singleness brings blessings. Seventhly, be content with our lot. We need to learn the secret of being content. It's a secret. It needs to be learned. That's what Philippians 4.12 tells us. Paul's rule, he says, in the churches that he goes to is don't strive for what you don't have. And he uses illustrations relevant in the day. Circumcision. People who were, in, who were finding themselves, they were Christians, but they found they were slaves. Christians who were free. Christians who were married. Christians who were single. And he says, don't strive for what you don't have. Changing our status won't necessarily make us happier or help our walk with God. Longing for a day when everything changes and we can then be fruitful just wastes the precious days that we're in at that moment in time. Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. God wants us to be fruitful, wants you to be fruitful where you are right now. Treating our body as the temple of the Holy Spirit is what, is what counts. God wants you to honor him with your body. Are we content? If we're not content, is God trying to teach us something about being content? <coughs> be content with our lot. Lastly, sex is not everything. It isn't. Right at the beginning, Paul uh, uh, repeats the argument that some in the church were saying, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the, the literal translation of the Greek. Sex is causing so many problems in Corinth that the best thing Christians can do is to avoid it. That isn't God's view. God designed sex as a celebration between a man and a woman within the commitment of a loving marriage. Sex is a precious gift. So don't use it as a reward or a weapon or treat it as a recreational activity. Maybe hearing Paul say that a wife's body is not her own, maybe your hackles went up when you heard that being read. I mean, it doesn't sit well in a Me Too culture. Yet straight afterwards, Paul says that a husband's body is not his own. It belongs to his wife. I want to tell you, that was shocking in first century Greece. In marriage, we belong to each other. Within marriage, there should be an open discussion about sex. You know, sometimes that's not easy if you've grown up in a home where things were never talked about. Paul 
Paul says that sex outside marriage is like scooping fire into our laps and thinking we won't get burnt. Listen, sex isn't everything. There's nothing wrong with us if we haven't had sex, if we don't have sex, if we never have sex. Jesus is the proof. Be filled with the Spirit instead. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us self-control as a gift of the Spirit and enables us and gives us the strength to flee temptation. If you're here today and you have made mistakes in this area, I want to tell you there is forgiveness from a Father in heaven who loves you. So as I've talked this morning, this will have stirred up many emotions will have stirred up emotions in people who, in the whole area of marriage, maybe I've touched on things that have provoked you. Maybe you're here today and you've, you've been challenged in terms of the whole thing about divorce. And maybe you're feeling right now guilty and anxious and fretful. Maybe you're here and feeling damaged in the whole area of singleness. Maybe the whole area of sex has become a trap that you've got caught in. I want to tell you there is answers. I want to encourage you to talk to people who you trust, those in the church around you, who can point you in the right direction. Come and talk to people who can help you. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? God wants us to reign in life. That means that when we're struggling with stuff, God wants to help us through, and there is a way through. And so uh, as the band come up, they're going to lead us in a song uh, where we focus on Jesus and then Phil will lead us in a response. I just want to read, I want you to listen to something as I read it out to you. It's a quote from John Mark Comer's book. I'm finishing with this. The future world, the one that is now breaking in through Jesus and his followers and that one day will come into force is like Eden. But it's something more, something even better. It's not just a garden, it's a garden-like city. It's not just Adam and Eve, it's persons from every tribe, language, and people and nation. And it's not just marriage between a man and woman, it's all of humanity united in relationship with God forever. John writes, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Are you single? Married? Are you lonely? In love? Are you hurting? hopeful, wherever you're coming from, here's what you can know with certainty. This life is a gift. Love, marriage, sex, even singleness. This whole thing was created by God. It's good and it's for you to enjoy. I hope and pray you do that well. Live the way God made you to live, the way of Jesus, what one writer called the life that is truly life. Thank you.